everyone, and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite murder shoot podcast in hours two. I'm your co-host, TJ. I'm Bridget. And this week, we are talking about the episode, Death Takes a Dive. So, Bridget, what is this episode about? Nobody knows because... It's way too damn long. of it... Because 90% of it is a flashback. It's an hour and a half instead of an hour. It's a hot mess of an episode. But in brief, we have Harry McGraw's return for the third time. And he has somehow gotten entangled with a boxer and he convinces Jessica to loan him some money and come on board as like a co-owner. I don't know what the right word is, but that sounds awful to say. Essentially, yeah. Co-owner of this boxer and they get all entangled with uh, this boxing gym and the guy who's promoting the big fight who's played by Adam West ends up dead and it looks like he was killed by Harry McGraw's gun. Uh, so now Jessica is once again in the position of having to bail Harry out. She does need with, with quite literally, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah, she does. Um, so, you know, cause she not only has to loan him like a significant amount of money, but also get him out of jail. So. I mean, at this point, I'm just, I mean, I was on board for their friendship in Tough Guys Don't Die because they were such a cute dichotomy of opposites. Uh, and also because like she didn't know him yet. So she was just trying to help figure out what happened to his partner in the second time we saw him one good bid deserves a murder she he drugged her and you kind of couldn't forgive him for that but i thought it was pretty innocuous and they were ultimately like good buddies how very feminist it was i know right but at this point i mean this is three times now that harry's been arrested for murder and jessica's had to solve the problem and also he's always getting into financial situations and she has to bail him out financially as well and i'm just like honey why are you still friends with this guy well i mean he is played by jerry orbach who is notoriously charming and also roguish do you think he's handsome i do do you uh I do actually. Um, he's not pretty just, like, gray at the temples in this. Like he looks he is, older yeah. than I would expect him to look. Right. I mean, because he's not that old at this point. Like he's what in his fifties, I think. Well, or- in the episode, the newspaper says that Harry McGraw is forty-seven, but Harry oh, tells Jessica not to believe everything she reads. So he was born in nineteen thirty-five. So I guess yeah, that was about right. He's ten years younger than her. Like, he's a really old-looking. That's what I'm saying. Well, anyway, yes. The short, long, short of it is he's had a hard life, man. Yeah, I mean, he strikes me. He is very hard-boiled. He is the type to live that kind of, you know, hard, hard-drinking, hard-loving life. That is one of the things I really genuinely love about this episode, for all of its sort of bloated time, is that it's very, it's not noirish per se, but it's very pulpy and very, like, and its dialogue is uh-huh. very noirish. And it's, like, back, uh, its flashbacks are very noirish, which I very much, because he says to something, to the effect that the mall of the boxing guy played by adam west is she smelled like she was an armful of gardenias or something to that effect i was like are you talking about harry's cute dialogue yes i wrote down a bunch of it because it's just really great i mean the episode was written by peter fisher and um he wrote tough guys too and he ultimately will write um and produce the law and harry mcgraw and i just think he knows this character really well because he just comes up with these ridiculous things for him to say right it's like i mean it's someone who has a real understanding of the cadences of of Mm. hard-boiled detective fiction Mm -hmm. Like the way that snappy, very suggestive dialogue and the turns of phrase that are just very florid at times. And I, as someone who also tends to be very florid in my prose, I find that very appealing. I mean, one of the things that he says to Jessica is, you know, he says he needs $5,000 to get out of trouble with this 
guy who's involved in organized crime and also involved with this boxer. And Jessica's like, I will lend you $5,000. I'm not giving you $5,000 and going in on this boxer with you. And he says, well, Jessica, a gentleman does not borrow money from his friends, which is hilarious, right? Like, you, it's not gentlemanly to borrow the $5,000. It's more gentlemanly somehow, curiously, to take 5K from her, get her entangled with the organized crime and this fight promoter and a boxer. And now she's listed with the boxing commission as a manager of this boxer. And yeah, anyway, that's Harry. He gets her into trouble. It's a business proposition. That's the thing. It's, like, <laughs> it's a business. In- it's an investment. That way you're not actually borrowing the money. You're just going in on a project together. Well, as Jessica says, the less I know about what you're up to, the better I like it. And unfortunately, she gets in. She ends up very intimately involved in this whole. Very deep. (laughs) I mean, I will say that, you know, even though I found this episode hard to get through just because it's so long and it doesn't really need to be. Like, I don't necessarily think there's enough story there to be deserving of a two hour or an hour and a half episode. There are a lot of things that I liked about it. I I have a confession to make to Bridget, and I'm sure she's going to be horrified when I tell her. I actually like boxing. Like, I'm not a sports aficionado, but I do enjoy boxing as a sport. Oh, my God. I really think you should have told me this before we started recording this podcast. I just recently watched all of the Creed movies, um, which I know is obviously fictionalized, but I have always had a soft spot for boxing ever since I was in an undergrad. Oh, my God. I think it's disgusting. I think it's arcane. I think it's unnecessarily violent and perpetuates the worst stereotypes of masculinity. I also just think it's like physically disgusting. Like, why do I want to see people getting their teeth punched out? That's gross. Uh, It's horrible. It should not even be a thing that exists. So that part of the episode is really challenging for me. But we'd actually see very little boxing in this. I was going to say, we see almost no boxing. The only (laughs) time we see it is like, we don't even see the mat, like any of the actual matches. It's just like the, 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 so it was very much a letdown in that regard. But yeah. Yeah, although we do get one really great sports montage because every story with an athlete has to have a sports montage. Of course. And the best part about it is that Jessica, as she did with the football episode, she's training alongside her prize fighter. We see them jogging together. We see her riding her bicycle to keep pace with him while he runs. It's very cute. It is. So it feels like this is tapping into Rocky mania. Yeah. Like, I have a feeling that that's sort of the intertext that we're dealing with here. Yeah, definitely. Which I love. You know, like I said, I, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for a good sports drama, but boxing drama in particular. But we don't need to rehash the book. I know Bridget's feeling very hostile toward me about the boxing thing, so we can move on. I mean, I think we basically just broke up, but I have to sit here for another 23 minutes and pretend like we're still in love. So it's a little bit awkward. Yeah. You know? I mean, this is the feminist in you, right? It's all about choice until the choices disagree with what you actually want. <laughs> Don't say that because then feminists are going to write in. I mean, podcast. to be fair, I was I was kind of pooped. I, I'm, a, I'm a devout feminist myself, just to put that on the table. But I'm also a big old bottom, so that's why I let Bridget sort of dominate me <laughs> on this podcast on a weekly basis. Okay. So let's talk about um, – I think both of us felt like the plot was sort of dragged out unnecessarily. It really could have probably told the same amount of story in a 42-minute episode, although – uh, Harry McGraw opens the thing with this flashback that goes on forever. And I'm kind of it like, does go. this is an awful lot of backstory. Like, when are we going to get to the episode? Um, but it did feel in many ways like it was drawn out. So let's talk about the parts of it that were there to hook us. So in your case, it was watching men pummel each other. In my case, it was the um, amazing guest stars. I mean, that was also a big draw for me. Yeah. 
So we have Harry McGraw, Jerry Orbach, whom we love. Uh, I don't even know where to start. Like, it's so exciting. I'll start with Ernst Borgnine, who I always is just someone who is amazingly prolific as an actor without, like, leading man good looks. But, like, the man was in literally almost every major, you know, movie at one point or another. Yeah. Yeah. As well as guest starring in TV. But, like, and he lived to be in, like, 97 or something. Like, he was, you know enormously prolific and very long-lived and oddly enough married to ethel merman for like a very short period of time oh i didn't know that um Mm -hmm. he plays the boxing gym owner who um is you know not actually a great guy because all the people are not really great guys and one of the things that harry mccross says about him is that he calls him pizza Pizza belly belly. (laughs) (laughs) literally (laughs) laughed for like a good minute about that particular turn of phrase Um, okay, so we have Ernest Borgnine. I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the less exciting and then I'll get my we'll up my squee levels here. So we have Bradford Dillman in this, and we have seen him before in Murder to a Jazz Beat. He was the investigator. Uh yes, uh, yes, yes. And in this one, he is the fight trainer, the trainer of the fighter that Jessica's fighter is going up against, who's called uh, his name is Sean. Sean Chalene, but they call him the Shillelagh, which is maybe not okay. I'm Irish, so I'm going to say it. Um, he, he plays his trainer. And what I love, TJ, is this moment where he goes, he, Jessica comes in and he goes, I know who you are, which feels like in the narrative world of Murder, She Wrote, of course he does because she her face is on her books and everybody knows her. She's a famous author. But it's mm-hmm. also like this feels like a little bit of a wink for the rest of us who know that they just keep recycling guest stars. Mm-hmm. I know who you are. Yeah. Because I met you in New Orleans when you were a cop. Right. And, of course, there's John Amos, who plays another trainer, who is, of course, famous for good times. It's always fun to see him. I'm very – I was very confused about his function in this episode. Like, why was he even there? I don't know. I mean, I guess they needed another plot thread to keep things going. But he didn't even do much. Or I mean, he's not in very many scenes. He has very little dialogue. No, but he's clearly lost a lot on the races. That's what we learned. Yeah. Because as they're sitting in that sports bar, he goes up and sees the races and, like, his horse comes in last. Well, he turns down Jessica's proposal to keep going through with the fight because he thinks he's going to make a lot of money. And then he comes back to the table and is like, anyway, about that fight. Uh Uh-huh. But by the end of the episode, he and our prize fighter, Blaster, are going to run away to Tennessee together to run a dairy farm. Right. Which is quite a proposition. It's no mean feat to run a dairy farm, I'll tell you that. As someone who's That's what I was father, thinking. Like, did they think that was that, that sounded like charming and easy? Because that sounds like a lot of work that they're not trained for. I My grandfather had a dairy farm. My best friend's father was a dairy farmer. It is not the profession to, to undertake lightly. Well, they're going to do it together, presumably in a no-homo way. I would assume. <laughs> but, I mean, I was like, wow, this is an interesting turn of events. Mm-hmm. Okay, then we have – I'm just going to go to Adam West because it's Adam West and he is the best Batman and I love him. I'm just absolutely madly in love with him and I love everything he says as Batman. He's like the most upstanding citizen and in this episode, he's a bad guy and it's so confusing. He's a very aggressive bad guy too. Like he has very much, you know, leaned into the – you know, not crime lord exactly but not that far from it either. You know, this man – you know, this guy who controls these – boxers and their fates 
He also, though, I think the the part of it that did feel familiar is that he in the first scene we see him rolling in and he's he's basically doing like a really effete Bruce Wayne, mm-hmm. um, like he's wearing very nice posh clothes. And we later learn that he actually grew up poor, and so presenting himself as really sophisticated and put together was really important to him. And that actually becomes a clue because when they found his body, he was just wearing a plain t shirt. So Jessica figures out someone must have removed his clothing and probably because the gun left scorch marks. So that's like an actually important clue. But in this, you know, in this moment, we see him with a cashmere scarf and he's like all sort of done up and he just seems very suave and sophisticated. Um, right. He stepped out of Gotham. As a, he's, a, he's a crime lord from Gotham. <laughs> and I just, I, I was like texting TJ like, wait, he's already dead. Why am I watching this episode still? Wait, he's there again in a flashback. Oh, not enough flashbacks with him. So I just wanted more Adam West. I mean, so there are two things that strike me about this Adam West character. First is that I love Adam West's delivery. Like, he's someone who really effortlessly chews the scene scenery, but not necessarily oh God, a campy way. Like, it is camp, but it's not like true extreme of camp. But he just, he has a knack for ha- somehow being both with, gra- imbuing lines with both gravitas and camp. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Which is always really fun. Yeah. He just has this really overmattered way of speaking. <laughs> um, but secondly, like, it's striking that his murder takes off, like, takes place off stage. We don't even get a flashback to relate how it happens, like, which we usually get. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no actual visual representation of the killing of this character. Maybe we just, they just didn't want to show. Adam West, a.k.a. Batman, being killed by someone. Maybe that would just be a bit too much. That would be crushing to me. And and after we're told in the narrative present that the character is dead, we we see at least one flashback with him. So it's like he's, you know, I think as you say, like, the, the idea of him is still very much present and alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, I mean, there's other people in this, but, like, these are the ones that we get excited about. Finally. Right. TJ. There's LeVar Burton. We have Jordy freaking LaForge. And we just had George Takei in the last episode. And now we have LeVar Burton. Like, could this be any better? I know. I mean, mean, of course, there's also Reading Rainbow, which we mustn't forget, which is also key to his star text. This is at the the same time as Reading Rainbow, and it's post-Roots, and he is just – He's there's something about LeVar Burton that I've always loved because he just he feels like this sort of easygoing everyman. Mm-hmm. Like there's just something so fundamentally likable about him. That's true. And I think that's true in this one, too. He plays a newspaper reporter who actually like ambushes Jessica in a kind of creepy way. Um, but it's very forgivable because he just wants to talk to her to get some dirt because he's investigating Adam West's character. And he's so likable because he's Jordy LaForge and LeVar Burton that it's like, oh, it's all right that you had a cab driver drive her into an alley and, and jump in the car and scare her. Right. It's fine. You're LeVar Burton. Yes, exactly. And he has a very sort of um, a feisty energy to him in this in this role. Like there's, he's just sort of bursting mm-hmm. with energy for the moment we meet him. It just seems like he's almost going to like pop out of the screen. And I think that's a very apt, you know, for one thing, it's a very apt description of like a newspaper, you know, the stereotypical beat reporter who's like racing to get a story, like has to get yeah. it in by deadline, all that sort of journalistic representation. It's also very like, you know, if we're keeping with the hard-boiled pulp thing, like that's an also tried and true character within the world of pulp as well. So, yeah, But he's not he's not jaded and cynical like those reporters that's might true. be. No, I just meant he's just the energy part. He's definitely not mm-hmm. jaded. He's very dogged. He's very energetic and earnest. And Jessica at one point even says, like, 
you know, there's this sort of bitterness in your eyes when you talk about this guy. And I, so she kind of suspects that this is more than just a story for him, that it's something personal. Um, and it's actually very obvious. And I'm confused as to why it took her so long to figure it out other than we needed to stretch the episode. But his father was also a boxer who was screwed over mm-hmm. by Wade Talmadge, Adam West's character. And so that's part of the reason he wants to take this guy down with an expose. And he also gives him a, you know, an almost ex- motivation for murder <laughs> as a potential suspect. Yeah. Although, of course, he's not a murderer because he's LeVar Burton. And in the end, we don't see it, but we're told that he and his photographer are going to run away together and get married. So he gets a happy ending. He does get a happy ending. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit because we've alluded to it, but I'm curious, like, why is this episode so long? Like, I'm just, I mean, I'm just speculating, like, what if it feels long in a way that some of the other two-parters don't. Well, yeah, because it's not a full two-parter. It's an hour and a half. Right. Um, with commercials. And there was a, a half hour. I have to tell you, like, as a TV historian, I don't have a concrete answer on this. I did not spend as much time researching that question as I probably should have as a historian. But um, there was a half an hour gap in the schedule that night. And so I know that they intended it to be long. The question is, was there something else? I looked at the counter-programming, like what was up against them, to see if there was anything that would register as to why they thought Murder, She Wrote should get an extra half an hour. Um, Admittedly, I haven't found that answer yet. Someone who's listening might know more than me, and please tell us. Um, But they definitely intended it to run for just this night, They did not as a two-parter, and definitely to fill in an extra half-hour gap on the schedule. Right. So – I mean, it just strikes me that there – if they were going to go that route, it seems there were other stories they could have told that were more apt for an hour and a half relation. And we can see it, you know, we talked about Harry McGraw's like extended flashback, which feels like one of the ways in which the episode is padded just because it takes so long to get off the ground. There's just, there's a lot of backstory before we get really, to why Jessica is even in Boston in the first place. Right. Which is, you know, all of it is fun to watch, I guess, but it's not like when you're dealing with, you know, a relatively streamlined story. Like, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need all of this. Well, especially if we consider what you said last week. You said that you really appreciated that within the first scene of the episode, we have Jessica and the woman in the car, and that they, within just a couple of lines of dialogue, gave us as much exposition as we needed to understand the situation. And here we have Harry doing, like, a 10-minute – he's, like, narrating, like, a 10-minute sequence of, of backstory. That's a, that's a real shift, right? Right. There's all sorts of red herrings too, like the fact that you know Talmadge's mall might, you know, and I use that term deliberately, but his mall might be involved somehow. You know, there's a his mall, what? You know, the a gangster's mall. What the hell is that? It's like you know the the blonde, usually the blonde buxom woman who's always on the arm of the gangster. The gangster's oh well, mall. That, I didn't know that term because Harry McGraw just keeps calling her the squeeze. So that's oh, what well, I wrote in my d- notes: the squeeze or dame. You know whatever. Yeah, the dame. Yeah. Ugh, it's like, wow, what year are we in? Like, 1987, baby, but it's Harry McGraw. He's, it that's is, the way he, he talks. Like he's stepped right out of the 1940s. The squeeze in the pizza belly. That's a, that's a good st- title for a story right there. <laughs> what, no, so you were going somewhere with that, though. Oh, the gang. Oh, right. So, I mean, what I'm getting, there are just so many sort of false set, like dr- dead ends. They don't necessarily go anywhere and don't really have much narrative payoff either. Like the fact that the the girlfriend of Wade Talmadge slash Adam West is having an affair with the trainer. Yes, exactly. But that was intended to make us think either one of them could have been the murderer. Sure. And what's actually really awful is um, she goes over to Harry's apartment late at night and is and tries to, and actually does seduce him. 
which Harry tells Jessica and Jessica's like, yeah, I don't need the details. You can skip all that part. Um, but that's also like the moment that Wade is getting murdered. And so it's very confusing because Harry was home and his gun was with him. And then later he's like, well, I didn't, I didn't sleep with my gun. Right. <laughs> so like Jessica's like, okay, so basically what you're telling me is you were having sex with this woman. Your gun was elsewhere. But, like, she's Jessica and she'll never say that out loud. And she's, like, totally disturbed to be having this conversation at all with Harry. Yes. So I think I think there was some interesting stuff being done with this woman. Although, like, like it's really gross that she used Harry in that way. Mm, yes, I completely agree. And then later we even hear her the trainer that she's having the affair with. She tells him, I did that for you. So it's almost like he's using her body, too. It's gross. Right. But bodies being used is, is kind gross. of the theme because, you know, boxing. Right. Even the boxer himself is becoming merely a pawn. Like he, as he says to Jessica, he can't win because otherwise it just sets him up to like, no one will want to fight him anymore, which is part of the arcane rules of boxing. Like as much as yeah. I like boxing, I don't understand anything about how it works. Yeah. Right. So his best days are behind him. So people fight him now to look good. Right. And even the fact that like this guy that Harry went to for help left him the boxer when he died. This guy, we, you know, Harry's like, I went to see Pinky and we see like Pinky in a coffin. And then we see like Harry is handed some papers and the boxer standing next to him like, I take me home. It's like, I, I don't understand this. Like, how do you own a boxer? Like, this is weird, right? It's gross. I mean, it happens in the Golden I, I know. I just kept thinking on. about that. I know. It's like, what is this plot point that keeps coming up in TV world in the 80s of like, owning boxers like yeah and he's a blaster is a black boxer too so it's like extra creepy and they even make reference to slavery at one point and i'm like but do you not see that you're you're framing boxing is basically the same thing it's also you know there's a several moments when like ernest bordine's character really aggressively announces no women allowed like he's really aggressively yeah asserting the utter masculinity of the of the gym space which i thought was an interesting little grace note i haven't had haven't used that one in a while so i had to break that you haven't used that one in a really long time, but I'm glad you mentioned the no women allowed thing because it come, became a running theme throughout the episode, right? Like there's the signs in the gym and we hear it uttered a couple of times and we see um, LeVar Burton's photographer, who is a woman, gets in a fight with him over it. Like, haven't you ever heard of the Supreme Court? Like presumably talking about Title IX. And then, of course, Jessica is the manager. Harry's in jail and Jessica's the manager. So she's going to go in the gym and we see her working out with Blaster and – Again, like I love that, that she's a woman mm-hmm. in a man's space and she gets away with it, right? Because she seems right. innocuous. No women allowed. But it's Jessica. She can go anywhere. Yeah. It's not a woman. It's Jessica. Yeah. It's different. There's, I'm telling you, there's something really interesting being said about the kind of feminism that this series is perpetuating. Mm-hmm. So what about the murder itself? So it turns out that the, as Harry keeps saying, the shillelagh. The is- shillelagh. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, I have to wonder what year this is exactly. Um, I mean, admittedly, part of it is to sort of like the the uncouth nature of like sports language, like you know the tendency mm-hmm. to to boil characters to make boxers into larger than life characters that are you know sim- you know that are just one particular characteristic. But it turns out he's the one who did it, and then he comes and confronts Jessica and Harry with a shotgun. Yes, <laughs> at the boxing gym. I mean, having having been the one who killed Talmadge, it's just it's once again it's one of those moments where I'm like, okay, so you've already killed Talmadge, you're going to kill two more people with a shotgun. How exactly do you think this is going to end for you? I just don't think that you think enough like a murderer. Like someone is going to expose you. 
You're so you're the only thing you can do is off them too. Are you saying that this? Uh, you're saying you seem to have inhabited the position of a murderer awfully with awful ease. <laughs> Isn't that usually the position you take on this podcast? And I freak out. I know that's why I'm 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 sort of casting some side eye in your direction. <laughs> um. So they are at the boxing gym because. There was one of our clues was that Harry had this gun was that he punches Ernest Borgnine and in the struggle pulls out his gun and or Ernest Borgnine punches him. Anyway, there's a struggle. Harry pulls out his gun and a shot is fired. And so Jessica figures out what someone must have done was take that bullet, put it into a shotgun, shoot Adam West Wade Talmadge with the shotgun because it wouldn't leave its own ballistic traces. And so the bullet would only show a record of Harry's gun and therefore look like Harry shot the guy. Right. Which, is Which very- the good people of the internet are telling me is not actually even how guns work. Yes, that was what I was also – I mean, I don't know much about <laughs> firearms like at all, but I was like, this seems a bit far-fetched to me. Especially that I'm I'm also not convinced that the shillelagh would be able to put all of this together, not to be reductive. But it's just like – this seems – he doesn't seem like the type to be a ballistics expert. <laughs> you know what? I bet somebody else put him up to it and they never caught that person. I bet you it was the manager. Probably was, yeah. So the shillelagh shows up at the gym right as they're figuring all this out and has the shotgun. Yep. And he's mad because – why did he want to kill Wade? I mean, for the same reasons everyone wanted to kill Wade because Wade was – I think because he was just – you know, his entire life is being covered by this complete asshole. Yeah. Well, I'm a little bit confused because at one point Wade's yelling at him and says that he found him in Minnesota – but then later they say um, on the newscast, they say that the shillelagh is from Sheboygan, which is in Wisconsin. I mean, it all just sort of blurs together. I mean, they're from New York or they're in Boston. Sorry, they're in Boston. <laughs> so I'm sure they're all just blurs together into one big white yeah. mess over there in the Midwest. That is, no. Minnesota and Sheboygan are I'll, very I'm not different. saying that I don't know that. I'm saying that to people from Boston, I'm sure that the Midwest is all just the same. So I want to talk about two other things before we run out of time, Teach. I want to talk about um, Jessica's relationship to the police mm-hmm. in this, which, you know, we used to always talk about that and we've kind of drifted away from. But we have Lieutenant Casey in this, um, played by Ray Girardin, who we last saw in One Good Bid Deserves a Murder. So it's right. the same Boston cop who arrested Harry before. And I, I really like that bit of continuity. Um, but he does all the things that police have to do and say. And then, like, just kind of undoes them to keep the story moving. Yes. So Jessica's like, can I see the file? And he's like, no, the DA would have my ass. And then he's like, well, what the hell? Go ahead. <laughs> yep. Right? <laughs> so I feel like it's really very convenient writing that he's like, Jessica, you can't be involved. Well, I don't have any clues. Go ahead. You know? Yeah. Happens a couple of times. And then he also – we ha- I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up. He also uses the R word. Yeah. Which I think is the only time I've ever heard that word in Murder, She Wrote. And I hear it very rarely, even in other pop culture, just because it seems... Well, certainly never anymore. Well, sure. But I mean, even from the time, I can't remember hearing it very much. Yeah, right. We should definitely tell people that because they probably want to be prepared, right? It's really jarring today. It is. I mean, it's jarring even at the time. Like, it just feels like something out of a world that is not Murder, She Wrote. I mean, he what he's saying is he's getting frustrated with um, police on the phone and saying that nobody good ever comes out of the police academy. Uh, and then what's extra confusing and concerning is that he says, like, you'd fit right in to Jessica. So he's implying that she also is one. Um, it's pretty toxic, right? It is, yeah. Especially coming from such an otherwise affable and rather, you know – 
quasi buffoonish character. It just feels very, feels very on off note, I guess. Yeah. Off key. Yeah. And well, you know, good for, I guess, good on Harry then that Harry ultimately makes a deal with the TV station uh, to tell the story of how he solved the murder. Yep. <laughs> so he's cutting Lieutenant Casey out and he's also cutting Jessica out. Because uh, she says, a single-handedly solved. And she says, single-handedly. Uh, and he says that she is the best leg man a PI ever had. Ugh. So he's going to take all the credit for this. But it made him some money, so he was able to pay her back the $5,000 right. loan. So she can't really complain too much. But it's also just like, I don't know, Harry is like that one toxic friend. You know, like I had a friend in college who would always be like, you guys, it's 4 a.m. Let's go to Denny's. And then we'd get there and he'd be like, I forgot my wallet. Uh, it's like, not only God. was this your idea, but like you're not even contributing to it, right? Uh, I feel like that's Harry. He's like, come down to Boston and rescue me from a situation. And then I'm not even going to thank you. I'm going to take all the credit for it. Yep. That sounds like exactly what he's Why doing. Why is she friends with this guy? You know, Jessica, she loves to take in like foundlings and foundlings broken <laughs> and broken people. I mean, I think. I think she should probably spend some time with her therapist exploring why she's attracted to such, <laughs> like, dangerous and men whose lives are such hot messes. I believe the word you're looking for is ne'er-do-well. Oh, that's a good word. Do you feel like Harry McGraw is a ne'er-do-well? He is the epitome of a ne'er-do-well. <laughs> well, he says to her, what's a little white lie between friends? And then they all laugh, and that's our freeze frame. So once yeah. again, we do get, like, the post-confession happy scene, which I kind of like. Well, that seems like a good place to call it quits for today. So for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I am TJ. I'm Bridget. And we will talk to you next week. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs>